0: Good morning again. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter three, as we continue to work our way through this important epistle. We have been taking the time to unpackage the meaning of these important passages related to the relationship between a husband and a wife, and. We've taken the time to look at verse 18, and our focus has now shifted to verse 19 beginning last week, and we're going to be here for quite a while, so ladies take heart. Um, I'm an equal opportunity offender, and so uh, we will make certain that the men have their due in, in due course. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read the passage and get into the verse 19. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for our salvation in Christ, uh, whom we adore and worship this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us focused on your word. We are to be engaged in worship, not allowing our minds to wander, uh, not drifting away, contemplating other things, but just for a brief moment of time, a short period of time, considering all that we do and all that we obligate ourselves to, we ask that you would Empower us, strengthen us, make us alert this morning to hear what your word has to say to us. These are the words of life, and we are so grateful for them. Thank you for preserving them and keeping them through the ages. Bless us with the power of the Holy Spirit, both in the proclamation of the word and its inward possession, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, I'm, I'm much encouraged, I must say, by... The good reports that I am receiving on many fronts about the effect of God's Word on your relationships in your homes with your husband and your wife, Uh, good reports of whoopie pies being made, and um, even heard it rumored that people are renaming their favorite hot sauce or something connected to their wife. I won't mention any names, Mike Roberts, but... um, the, uh <laughs> but these are encouraging, these are encouraging developments. I was at Lowe's of all places yesterday and I ran into the Blosses and they were grinning ear to ear as, as, as Jess had a cart full of, of items for her home and a new kitchen floor and, and, and Zach was quite confident that he was living up to his calling as a good husband <laughs> to his wife. And so... You know, I'm I'm going to change my name to the you know I don't know the the love pastor or something. I, yeah, you know, every week we're here and yeah, you know we'll we'll get the good reports. So keep up the the great things. I know we laugh, but it's fun and I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but these are good things to hear and um, I'm I'm grateful that the Lord is is working in the lives of you folks and through His Word and that's what His. Holy Spirit does and um, Christians hear his word and lives are changed and transformed and um, I'm grateful for what I'm hearing and seeing. And so today we'll continue to look at these important passages that we have in front of us here in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Let's go to verse 12. Um, This is certainly the foundation that Paul is using to establish the arguments and position that he takes with regard to the relationship between a husband and a wife and and so it's important that these verses are read as reminders verse 12 so as those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against any one just as the Lord forgave you so also should you now we understand that That Paul is making application in in two different ways. Obviously, he's making application within the church and how Christians relate to each other, but these principles also apply and serve as the basis, the predicate for what Paul then will also say about the family. We don't divest ourselves of these important principles and precepts and precedents that are found in these passages when we step into the home. They are equally important. And so we want to keep that in mind. These attitudes, these virtues, ought to be on demonstration between a husband and a wife on a continuous basis within the home. Their absence then, of course, would be sinful and problematic. Verse 14 is important. We're gonna reach into this passage again today briefly. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father." Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So last week we looked at, importantly, at the passage here that we have in verse 19, transitioning out of 18 to the husbands, of course. We understand that Paul is speaking directly to a, a, a specific group of men who are husbands here in the Colossae church, and and he's giving them instruction as he did with the wives. And so this group is emphatically emphasized. It's the language that's used, the grammatical structure of the passage um, indicates that Paul wants them to make certain that the husbands are hearing him. And so grammatically, there's an emphasis on this particular word, husband, And then he gives the instruction, of course, that we looked at last week and began to unpackage, and we're going to take several Sundays going forward, Lord willing, to continue to understand what does this love mean? Well, we understand that the word for love here used by Paul is that important Greek word agape, that type of love that only Christians can demonstrate. And so paul understanding that he's writing to christians he's dealing with people who are believers has an expectation that a husband is going to love in this manner this is, this is what he is to do, and Paul's language and, again, the grammatical structure speaks to the idea that this is an ongoing habitual type of activity. It's not something that's simply done in response to getting your felt needs met or on the days that you're happy or the days that you're more engaged with your wife. No, it's something that is habitual, consistent, and importantly, increasing in its fervor and strength. For Paul, this is not static. This love is not just a, a, a one-time, one-off type of experience that's expressed on some day, perhaps on your wedding day, but it's a love that continues to grow, importantly, as you mature spiritually. So as you grow, men, as a believer, and your obligation in your home is to do that, you are the spiritual head of your home, you then are going to have a love that increases Importantly, because of why? Because as you are studying Scripture, as you're engaged in God's Word, as you're plumbing the depths of the wonder of your salvation, you are loving and will love Christ more. And as you love Him more, you're going to love your wife more. Because what will happen is that you'll begin to learn in a more deeper way how it is that Christ has loved you. How it is that Christ has loved his church. I would submit to you that a man who has a deeper knowledge of the things of God, who has a fervor for theology and the things that are contained in Scripture, but yet is not growing in his love for his wife, has a problem. He's not making the connection that the study of these things has become a mere academic pursuit, which is problematic. As you study the things of God, what ought to be happening to you is that the, that, that, that the curtains of your heart are being pulled back and exposing to you your sinfulness, your pride, the things that are going on, and importantly, the likelihood that you're perhaps not loving your wife the way that you ought to. Now, this love incorporates many things, as we saw last week. This, word for, this love... That Paul describes here through the word agape incorporates a lot of concepts and principles that we looked at. We found that there's a direct correlation between love and a willingness to forgive. We found that love causes one to give themselves for others to the point of even death. We found that love is something that's not transient and changeable but it's permanent. We also found that love shows itself in mercy. And we also see that love causes a person to share the things of God's Word and to encourage and exhort one in the context of Scripture. These are all things that we find reflected in Christ's love for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And so these things are attendant with what Christ does. And I encouraged the men last week to think about the fact that when you're considering and pondering this issue of loving your wife, to be mindful of the fact that you're doing so in, in, in the context of how Christ loves his church. And as noted, we're going to take the time to really begin to unpackage the depth and the wonder of that. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at the manner in which Christ loves the church to make certain that we have the proper foundation, men, laid for us with regard to how it is that we ought to love our wife. It's so critically important, and I would submit to you one that we have missed the mark on in many ways. My concern is that these types of passages in Scripture are often ignored. The exhortations that we have here from Paul with regard to these virtues, the idea of forbearance and forgiveness, being bound together in love, which is the bond of unity, are oftentimes oddly absent from the Christian community. We oftentimes find that The opposite is true. There's a harshness. And indeed, it's interesting that Paul would juxtapose the issue of love and harshness even with regard to the relationship between a husband and a wife. In verse 19, Paul says, Husband, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Do not be harsh. Don't be heavy-handed. Don't do the things that are counter to the very concept and principles of love. There's a distinction there to be made. Of course, love and harshness, love and embitteredness, those are opposites. They cannot dwell in the same house. One will exclude the other. And so a husband who is truly loving his wife as Christ has loved the church will automatically fulfill the latter obligation of the passage. That is, to not be embittered. And so Paul here, speaking positively and directly to husbands as it relates to loving them, does emphasize the fact that they are not to be bitter against them. It stands in contrast to the idea of love itself. There's no room for bitterness in the life of a husband with his wife not to be bitter or sour or harsh is the kind of the meaning of that particular word our tendency unfortunately is to default into that mode is it not or or to even make our love in some ways conditional and and then to respond in a bitter sour harsh way when our conditions are not met And so as a consequence, we end up falling short of the exhortation that we have here then from Paul in this regard. We find then that the example that Paul would ultimately use for us in the book of Ephesians is Christ himself. As Christ lives selflessly for the church, which is his bride, so too should husbands love and live to their wives. And that's interesting. The idea, the concept of loving incorporates with it this principle of living to something else other than yourself. To make your wife such a priority in your life in the context of love that you are living to her, that your love compels you to place her first and above all other things, even yourself, and we know that we love ourselves quite a bit. And indeed, what happens in Scripture, we find in Ephesians, is that Paul says, love, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. But if that seems overwhelming to you, then just love her the way you love yourself. Giving them two different standards, if you will. And so we want to make certain then that we make clear in our own minds that our love for our wife Causes us then to not be sharp and harsh and bitter. This is what Paul is talking to, as we kind of covered all latter half here briefly of this particular passage before we move into some other things. Indeed, the idea here that Paul communicates in verse 19 when he says, "And do not be embittered against them, is to not allow that to happen. Don't give place to it. Don't allow the idea to even take root in your relationship with your wife and man that's hard you know oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where something has happened in our relationship with a, with our wife and we allow that particular issue to fester and as it festers, we end up beginning to allow this idea of bitterness to creep in. And you begin to then justify in your own mind that you're okay with that, that you're allowed to do that because you were slighted in some way. She didn't respond the way that you thought that she ought to. Perhaps she didn't um, you know, make the whoopie pies when you thought she should have or whatever else it may have been. She just didn't do what you thought ought to be done. Well, certainly, applying the principles of forbearance and forgiveness, that, should, that bitterness should not have even begun to develop. And based upon the exhortation itself in verse 19, it's not permitted at all. There isn't to be any type of anger, resentment, or bitterness of spirit. Indeed, the, 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 the grammar here, which Paul uses, it's the present imperative, carries with it the idea of forbidding a habitual action. So as we look at this from the standpoint of even the grammatical structure, one could read it to say, Husbands, keep on loving, loving your wives, and never habitually become engaged in bitterness. One excludes the other, of course. So habitually you are to love your wife, and habitually you are to guard against not becoming embittered against them. As one, so what happens then is this. As I'm dealing with myself in the context of loving my wife or not being embittered against her, this is directing my conduct. Now, this is so very important. What I don't want to have happen is that this is all taken in, in, in some way in just some laboratory setting. We want to make certain that when I look at verse 19 as a husband, that I am then going to be engaged in action as a consequence of what I'm being taught. If that's not taking place, then this, isn't, this is worthless. You might as well just get up and go play golf, or wax your car, or do whatever you're going to do. Because what Paul is saying is that the new creational lifestyle that we have in Jesus Christ, the transformation of a person who has been clothed by God himself in a new nature, is going to be engaged in these very things. You want to know what Christians do? You want to know what God's will is for your life? Here you have it. Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians that the will of God is what? Even your sanctification. So this is your sanctification, men. This is is the consequence of your justification. God has justified you, made you new creation in Christ, clothed you in the righteousness of Christ, and he now has an expectation that you're going to be growing into what he has made you. That is, a godly man, a godly husband, who is loving his wife in this way in this way. And so it becomes habitual. And it becomes habitual because it can be, because before it couldn't be. The natural man receives not the things of God, they're foolishness to him. And so it doesn't quite work the same way for an unbeliever as it does for the regenerate, ultimately is what Paul would say to us. And so this forbids that habitual action of, of being bitter or being angry or being upset. And man, does that become an issue. We are so easily offended. We're we're so easily tipped over, men. And I I would say to you, in some ways, this is part and parcel of the emasculation of men. We we have become men who are more emotional like women than what a man ought to be. I referred to it before as the operization of men, you know, touchy-feely, always, you know, kind of, and just, just, just unhinged in some ways. So quick to be offended. So easily offended. Paul says, no. Don't become bitter. Don't allow it to continue to fester. This is the same principle that we find in Scripture with, with regard to not allowing a root of bitterness to take, to take root in our lives, if you will. Paul simply applying that same idea. Um, and so he wants to make certain that men understand that with regard to their relationship. Now, this is incredibly practical. This is incredibly practical. And again, we've talked about the context in which these people live. Life is not easy. You've got a false teacher in the church. You've got all kinds of issues going on. You've got problems. And here Paul reaches into the most baseline practical application of Scripture that you can almost find. How to get along with your wife a question that has caused thousands of gallons of ink to be spilt upon paper, numerous books, massive marriage conferences, five steps to a better marriage. I've seen that on churches' billboards, advertising an upcoming series. Marriage conferences are packed out. Books on marriage and relationships in the family are bestsellers, typically, on the Christian book list. But what's interesting to me is that Paul's advice is pretty just direct and straightforward. And what it also says to us is this, is that as a husband, I need to be a good theologian about Christ. And and it's so important. I need to understand, if I'm going to love my wife correctly, biblically, I need to understand who Jesus Christ is obviously, personally in the context of a relationship with him through salvation, but importantly, to understand his work in person and his relationship with his bride. With his bride. Absent that, you're not going to capture really the essence of what Paul is saying here. And so the direction that Paul gives here is clearly to the husband. His action then in response to what Paul is saying is to be directed to the wife. She is to be the recipient then of this very love. And as I noted last week, being loved precedes and enables being loving. And so you, you want your wife to love you back, then you ought to be acting in her, towards her in this way. And I would say again, the love is not conditional in the sense that I only love her if she loves me back. This is something that we'll learn as we examine the issue of Christ's relationship with the church. How many times has the church failed Christ? How many times has the church disappointed Christ? How many times has the church failed to live up to its calling and obligations, and yet what does Christ do? He continues to love the church sacrificially, selflessly, completely, and wholly. The idea here, too, is one of um, not developing an inward bitterness toward the wife. It's not just the idea of the external act. Paul's not saying to the husband, don't just express this in a verbal way. Don't verbally abuse your wife. Don't use harsh language with her. No, this is about a heart issue. The language that Paul speaks to is one that speaks to an inward bitterness, a festering, a corruption of the heart. Christ would tell us that it is out of the heart that all the things that corrupt a man come, all of those things that are contrary to Scripture. And so Paul here again is speaking to the heart issue as it relates to the man's relationship with his wife. And so the first question has to be, of course, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's important. And so if you're here today and you don't, then we need to talk about that because all you're going to try to do then is engage in some application of a, some sterile application of rules without having a heart transformation. The good news is this, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't have to have any kind of special ceremony. You have to be in a special place. Uh, you can cry out to the Lord right near where, where you are. Blind Bartimaeus was on the side of the road. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. There's no trick to salvation. It's quite simple. Call upon the Lord in faith. If you've done that, then of course the idea is that that transformation correlates then to your behavior. And your behavior then is directly related to the condition of your heart. And so the heart having been transformed and changed expresses itself in the home in this way. What we'll then find too is that that is continued in relationship with the children. As the father interacts with the children and how discipline is incorporated into the home and to not discipline with a heavy hand or in a harsh way, that idea carries through even in that context. And so we want to make clear and make certain in our own minds, and our own hearts, that we are living in this way towards our wife. Understanding what the word love means. So what would cause a man to be embittered against his wife and be harsh with her? Kind of begs the question in many ways. Oftentimes, a the emotional void left in the absence of a secure, singular, covenant love will incite the wife to feel insecure and uncertain. You know, men, if, if you are in, in your homes and you're not expressing your love to your wife in the context in which Scripture commands, what ends up happening is that it creates a void in your wife relative to an expectation that she has, that provides her with a sense of security and a fulfillment of what God has instilled in her to want and have from her husband. So here's the interesting thing. We forget this, men. So, so going back to Genesis 1 through 3, we have the creation mandate. God, God creates Eve for Adam, and we have, understand the context in that. But instilled within her is also a dependence upon Adam that is God-given, that is proper and correct, that was not part of the fall, but rather was given to her as a person who would be a helper to Adam and a companion and a need that only Adam then could fill for her. This is why it says that she would leave her father and her mother and that she would come and be joined to him and the two would be one flesh. That's an important principle for us to understand because as I'm considering passages like this, I need to make certain that I'm understanding how it is that God created my wife. How unique is she in the context of all creation? There is nothing else like her in the world. She is uniquely female. We don't want to forget that because that's under attack today. And in the context of her being female, and I can you know men men can say they're women all day long, but they're not. They don't have the emotional makeup. They don't have the mental context of what it is that God has innately designed a woman to know and to feel and to experience. Indeed, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter will even exhort the husband to be mindful of the fact of the creational difference of the woman not in a demeaning way but as an instruction to the husband to be mindful that he uses a language weaker vessel not in the sense of being inadequate or 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 sometime mentally deficient but rather that she was created different than you so when you act with her when you engage with her in the context of loving her you're appreciating the fact that God made her in such a way that she is uniquely wanting from you something that only you can give her. That is a love of which is spoken here. She can't, and unfortunately what happens is this, ladies, I'm not beating up on you again, but just in case, just to be certain, what will happen sometimes is that a woman will then look from, look from her girlfriends or other women that which she is lacking from her husband in the context of that emotional connection. And oftentimes, too, you can see situations where the men gets excluded because the woman becomes more fascinated with her female friends than with her husband. That can be a problem. We I mean, have to be guard against that and be careful about it. And so the idea here, then, is that husbands, if you're not fulfilling your God-given creational mandate to your wife... Relative to how she has been designed and has needs that only you can meet, that's going to create with her a sense of insecurity and a failure in her mind of the way in which you ought to love her. That love need in her is not being met, which is a God-given need that only you can provide. As a consequence, there is insecurity and uncertainty regarding the relationship, which at times, then, can create bitterness in the husband. What's your problem? What, 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 what's going on with you? Why are you acting this way? Why are you doing that? Well, it's most likely because you're not doing your job, bud. So, what happens then is this the woman begins to exhibit characteristics and traits that are contrary to what God intended in a negative way possessiveness cleanliness complaining and nagging now we're back in proverbs 27 and we got the drip or proverbs 29 you're in the desert you'd rather be in the corner of the house or in the desert well maybe that's because you're not doing what you're supposed to do guys it's not all her fault she may just be responding to what you're doing or not doing you're not loving her in the way that God intended. This, of course, plays into all other areas as it relates to maybe you've made your children an idol, spending too much time with them, your job, your buddies, your hobbies. all of those things can become significant problems. And so what Paul says to us here then, is, is you've got to guard the heart. You love your wife the way that love that Christ has loved the church. And, and, watch this, you love her in the same manner in which you express that love generally as a believing, as a believer. Look what Paul says. So if we go back, and I said we're going to reach back into this issue of what Paul has already established, because this is so very important. At the beginning, in verse 12, Paul uses this transition, so, so he's moving into the new creational lifestyle, that's important. Christians live and think in a certain unique way demonstrated by the presence of certain virtues. Those virtues are listed. Heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So so men, when you're dealing with your wife in the context of loving her, these virtues are going to be evident. They are not absent. They are to be on full-orbed display. They ought to be incredibly present, both within the church. This this is mind-blowing to me. Why why can't we get this? This is, first and foremost, how Christians act. We don't get to respond outside of the context of this first. We don't get to say, well, I'm going to be super angry, super bitter, and super mad, and I'm going to do that first. But that's what we do. We've got to stop doing that. We're killing ourselves. You're killing the church. You're killing your homes. You don't get to do that. First and foremost, it's not even the way Christians act. If I am new creation in Christ Jesus, if I have been born again, regenerated, made new, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, then these ought to be evident. This is the way I respond. This is what happens. So this is what we're called to do in the home too. Men, guess what? These are the virtues that are on display in the context of how you love your wife. How you love your wife. Verse 13, bearing, the principle of forbearance and forgiveness has to be present, men, in the home. And again, I said before, if if you decide to be kind of petty and small and carry grudges, then of course, you're not engaged in the principles of forbearance and forgiveness at all. And what will happen? Your wife will sense a deficiency in the manner in which she's being loved, and she's going to act in a certain way in response to that, possessive, clingy, complaining, naggy. You're going to get mad about that and get embittered, and there you go. There's the problem. And so we come back to these principles, and we make certain then, men, that we're understanding That as a new creation in Jesus Christ, I'm going to live and act in a certain way, and it ought to be on full orb display in my home. Absolutely in my home. And here's the thing. Might I submit to you that oftentimes the reason we don't see these things on display in the church is because they're not being practiced in the home. Practice makes perfect. So if you're showing up at church and you're angry and you're bitter, and you won't forgive, and you won't forbear, and your first impulse is to do the exact opposite of all these things, I would submit to you in all likelihood, that's what life at home has been like for the past week. And so as the believers, we ought to be sensitive to these types of issues. Now, what's interesting to me is this, that Paul does this. This idea of love is also reaching back into verse 14. Now, of course, the principle that he uses is the idea of we do these things because the way in which Christ has done these things for us too, right? In the latter part of verse 13, we understand that we engage in forbearance and forgiveness because, well, you've been the recipients of great forbearance and amazing forgiveness, right? Uh, Who are you to not be that way with other people at all, no matter what they've done, no matter what you perceive the slight to be, great or small? You don't get to be otherwise in any context, ever. Now, in verse 14, it says, beyond all these things, put on love, which again is that agape word, which is the perfect bond of unity. So there again, Paul uses that same principle, and that principle is equally applicable within the home for the man with his wife. The unity in the home that you have with your wife is what's found in verse 14. Put on love. Now, we used the language before. We, we pictured the cloak, right? Uh, a, 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 an overcoat under which are all these other virtues. These virtues by themselves without love are not all that great. They may feel sterile, they may feel harshly applied, but when you, when you add the tincture, I love that word, when you add the tincture of love to the virtues, it softens them and it makes them, it gives them depth and color and warmth and it makes them sincere, Right? They're sincere. No one wants to be treated in a, in a cold way, right? When the, well, You can, be, you can kind of show kindness to me, but did you really mean it? But when it's done in love, then it's, then, it, then, it, then it's received differently. So too with your wife. And so as I'm in the home and I'm living this out, I need to make certain that if I want unity within my home, and this applies to both the husband and the wife alike. So, so wife, you're, here's the beautiful thing. At the same time, if both are believers, husband and wife are performing these virtues with each other. Just just back and forth. It just becomes a love fest. You're just you're just happy all the time is the idea. You're 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 kind, you're acting out of a heart of compassion, you're gentle, you're patient to a fault, you forgive and you forbear, you forget. And this love of bond, this bond of unity, this love holds it all together. And as you grow in love for Christ, these become then more evident in your life. That's what Paul is driving home here. Again, let's not forget the principles of the new creational lifestyle. So the husband incorporating what is found in verse 14 of chapter 3 is to exhibit the new creation trait of love, right? Now, now some may say to me, well, pastor, the unregenerate can love. Oh, yes, they can. I agree they can, but they don't love the same way we do. We are uniquely equipped in the context of our regeneration to be able to love each other in the agape way, that Holy Spirit-driven love that only Christians can display to each other and to our wife. Now, if your wife is an unbeliever, you're still called to do this, gentlemen, to love her in this way, even though she's never going to perhaps reciprocate in any context that would be consistent with Scripture. We find that principle to be applied in 1 Peter chapter 3. There the example is the wife with an unregenerate husband, but the same is, is applied to a husband with an unregenerate wife. And so we find then that Paul has an expectation that as a consequence of salvation the husband is going to exhibit the new creation trait of love, which is the supreme virtue. Note it in verse 14. Notice that love comes after all the other virtues that are spoken of, even after forbearance and forgiveness, because if you love somebody, you're going to forgive them forbear, right? What this does then is it enhances, as a husband does this, it, it, it will increasingly seal This idea of a bond of completeness that we find in verse 14. So look at verse 14. You thought we were done with verse 14. But we're not done because, again, it's the predicate, it's the foundation. Beyond all these things, put on love, gentlemen, which is the perfect bond of unity this bond of unity or bond of completeness, you may say to yourself, there's something lacking in my marriage. There's something just not quite there, not quite right. I would submit to you, it's this. It's this very thing. And again, I would submit to you that the reason that it's absent is twofold. One, sin and and hard-heartedness. And secondly, a misunderstanding of what we're called to be as men. A manly man loves. There's nothing wrong with that. A manly man is gentle. A manly man is kind. A manly man is, is compassionate. Those are things that are characteristic of a godly man who is tr- transformed by a new creation. So what happens then, men, as you lead in your home, and what's interesting enough is that you are the leader. You're the one who's setting the barometer of what's normal in the context of home life. And so this has to be present in you. You may say, well, pastor, my, life isn't very, my wife isn't very loving towards me. Well, maybe you're not being loving towards her. Have you tried that yet? You got to. So this issue of love is so important. This is a constant love. This is Paul's point back in verse 14. We talked about that. The idea of putting this on is that it's not removed. It is a constant cloak. The constant cloak of love. I'm going to write a book. (laughs) So there you have it. So you're, you're, you're constantly robed in this. And as you're robed in it, you're living in it. And as you're living in it, you're engaging people in it. And as a consequence, your relationship with them is changed. What it does for you in your home, and your kids are going to see this too, is create this bond of unity. Your children ought to see the two of you as an inseparable unit. Now, I know we have the whole practice, um, you know, go ask your mother. Uh, Go ask dad. That type of thing. That's, That's okay. That's fun. But but the idea is that your children ought to see the two of you together, not just in some formal sense, but as as brought together in the context of love. I've used this phrase before, lovers and friends. That, That really unique, wonderful thing that only a Christian couple can know, your children ought to see it not in the man, not in some means by which you're constantly just worshiping them and falling over yourself to meet every one of their felt needs and sacrificing either one of yourselves on the altar of them no and we're going to talk more about that as it relates to the interrelationship between children and parents and what God would expect and anticipate but certainly in the context of love and we'll speak more to the issue of this later down the road your children need to see the dads loving their wife and their mom in a way that makes it very clear to them that nothing's going to get between them, that there is this great bond of unity. Paul would ultimately use similar language in Ephesians, talking about the idea that um, the husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Again, indicating the unity of the two and reflection of Christ's unity with believers as part of his own body. That's in Ephesians five twenty-eight through 30. And we're going to go back to Ephesians 5 and we're going to unpackage all those verses because there's so much there. And just as believers are for, to forgive one another in imitation of Christ's forgiveness of them, so husbands are to love wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And again, Paul's exhortation here in 3:19 is no doubt an imitation of Christ for giving love for the church, as in Ephesians 5:25. And ironically, just as Christ did so also the husband expresses his authority through sacrificially giving himself for his wife, especially by considering her needs before his own, Ephesians 5:25 through30. The husband's love and imitation of Christ, and especially love for his wife as his own body, means that the husband will consider the interests of his wife to be his own interests too, and will prioritize those above his. He will care for her as he cares for himself, since they are what? One flesh, according to Scripture. One pastor put it this way, the husband's love for his wife involves his unceasing care and loving service for her entire well-being. His unceasing care and loving service for her entire well-being. If a husband would not mistreat his own body, so neither must he mistreat his own wife who is part of his body. This, of course, makes sense then in terms of what we're called to do because one who is exercising that type of expression of love then is not going to become embittered against his wife. The presence of the exhortation to not become embittered means to me that someone's missing the love part and has allowed this embitteredness idea to eclipse their love for their wife. So, There you have it, Um, and there's much more to be said. So what we're going to do next is, uh, not this morning, of course, um, unless you want me to, but we we don't have to do that. Uh, But nonetheless, what we'll do next then is I'm going to go back then in Ephesians, and we're going to go back to 1 Peter, and we're going to begin to unpackage the specifics of those texts because, again, like we did with Genesis, the foundation is critically important. Paul here expresses an important biblical principle for the husband and there is much more said in scripture about the husband loving his wife than there is about the wife submitting to her husband and the detail of that instruction is critically important and so in ephesians 5 and in first peter 3 we're going to see the depth and level of what god is calling men who are married to do in the context of loving their wives. And we're going to look at how Christ has loved his church. If I'm going to understand as a husband how I ought to love my wife, I need to understand how Christ loved the church. And so we're going to talk about that. And that will give you then a good foundation to go forward into these types of passages, understanding then what you ought to be doing to fulfill what God has called us to do. Now again, I don't want these things to become begrudging. Obligations, duties that are just harsh and hard. No, again, understanding that these types of imperatives flow out of indicatives that cause us to say to myself and to ourselves, wow, what did God do for me? How did he do this? He saved me. All the wonderful things that have happened to me, how he's transformed me and brought me out of death into life and darkness into light. I I can't but want to do these things for God. I want to live for him in this way. And so this is done out of a heart of gratitude, not a heart of Begrudging and kind of kicking the ground. I don't know if the pastor says so, I will. Well, nobody wants to be loved like that. And why if she shouldn't accept that either in that context? As I noted, if you don't know the Lord, you can call upon his name. Salvation is not a mystery in the context of, of what we're called to do in order to obtain it. And it's simple, faith in Christ, looking to him as the object of your faith. Not faithing in your faithfulness, not going back and saying, I've been a good person this week and I think I'm gonna make it, and I'm okay. That's nothing, that's just works. That won't get you anywhere. But looking to Christ alone, Christ alone, resting in Christ alone. Christ as the object, looking at Christ, considering what he has done, resting in his good works, not your own. Why do we have the gospels? The Gospels tell me that he's God and that I can be confident in trusting in him, in faithing in him. That's why the Gospels are there. They give me that certain hope that my faith is resting in someone that I know has done it and it's been accepted. It will be forever. Do you know him? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the exhortation and the instruction. Forgive us, Lord, for not loving each other in the way that we ought, for not loving our wife the way that we ought. Help us to be mindful of this new creational lifestyle, this new ability that you've given us. Help us to marvel in it. Help us to rest in it. Help us to to act in it, to live in it, to your glory and to your honor. We pray that you would instill us with your Holy Spirit and convict us of these things and, importantly, strengthen us, too, to do them. We are weak and we are frail, easily sidetracked. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.